This edition of the Promo Cowboys podcast is brought to you by bourbon, beer, and bar pretzels, and by the TV industry expose slash crime novel, Promo Cowboy, by Barry Fitzsimmons. Kirkus Reviews called Promo Cowboy a genre-bending mystery set in the high-stakes world of TV. Fitzsimmons constructs a smart, well-plotted whodunit, and mystery fans will likely find his unusual setting and hero refreshing. This original, well-written crime story will win plenty of fans. Promo Cowboy by Barry Fitzsimmons, author of Life Askew, available at Amazon, Kindle, and your finer bookstores. Once, there was a great big office at 30 Rock, northeast corner of the 18th floor, overlooking the famous skating rink. In that office were more gadgets and games and toys and trinkets and mementos and musical instruments and stuff on the wall than you can possibly imagine. Every week, the members of the department once called NBC Network Advertising and Promotion, and later the NBC Agency, would gather in that office. Between 30 and 40 people, myself included, sitting on sofas and chairs and credenzas and window ledges and cross-legged on the floor while others hovered at the doorway if they came too late. It was a magical time, time to listen to their leader wax philosophic about what was going on in the department, at NBC, and within the industry at large. In the meantime, we learned a lot and we shared a lot. It was great. Welcome to the Promo Cowboys Podcast. This is Barry Fitzsimmons. Today we're going to hear from the very leader who held those members of the NBC agency in awe and occasionally in contempt. His name is Frank Raddus, and we go back more than 20 years. My interview with Frank went much like those departmental meetings at NBC, when Frank would simply start talking and never really stop, for a good hour sometimes, weaving countless topics that all somehow seamlessly flowed from one to the other until he finally said something like, Okay, all you get out of here and go make some great promos. Frank is a bona fide marketing genius, a television guru, a technology and social media evangelist, a Promax board member, a news producer, a composer, a leader, mentor, author, and he's gaining traction on the speaker circuit. Frank is currently living the expat life in London and tackling numerous pursuits as a consultant in technology and TV marketing, primarily for a PR outfit called Newsmarket.com, providing brand journalism and online newsrooms. It's an interesting way to distribute and disseminate content, primarily video content. So if you're a a brand, um, you might want to do your public relations uh, using an online newsroom so that the content that you create or we create for you can be distributed to journalists uh, on an online newsroom. So the journalist can just go to the newsroom after you've gotten a notification see a story or see video content, drag the video content down and either use it on air or online in uh, full resolution. Lamborghini is a client, for example, and interestingly enough, we, uh, you know, we, would, might, we would go to a Lamborghini uh, position at, a, at an international auto show, for example, and we would shoot content there, do interviews there, talk to the CEO, package it, put it on this uh, newsroom. People 
then uh, let let uh, journalists who might not have gone to this event or even who went to the event and wanted our content, including B-roll or interviews or sound bites, so they can go to this site and they can download this content and it's free. Uh, so that you know, that's one example of using one client. And one of the other the other end of that is is that our media relations team here has relationships with thousands of journalists around the world. So they could be somebody at Sky or they could be someone who does automotive blogging. So they have the opportunity to reach out to those people and say, hey, there's this great story about Lamborghini that's up now on the newsroom. Go to it and take the material. So this is like a, it's a branded news content operation, it sounds like. It is, but it's for many brands. So if you go in there, you might see uh, uh, we have Fila as a client. We have we have certain um, uh, uh, European Union uh, countries as clients. We have brands like Seat, package goods and and leisure uh, uh, companies and hotels. Uh, but that's my primary uh, client here in in the UK. I have uh, I have uh, another client that is a, a good friend of of ours uh, in uh, the US, uh, and that's um, Man Made Music, Joel Beckerman. Ah, uh, yes, Joel. So I represent Joel uh, over here in in the UK and in uh, and in Europe and in the EMEA markets. Um, so Joel's specializing in. Uh, sonic branding. So you, you, you in the U.S. would hear his sonic branding, for example, the four notes that you hear at the end of the AT&T commercial. That's Joel. Or the sounds and the, and, the, and the sonic score that you hear when you go to an IMAX movie. That's Joel. So he, he you know, he sonic brands. The, you know, uh, I worked with Joel uh, when we did a, uh, the theme for NBC News uh, w- with uh, John Williams, and uh, we, uh, you know, sort of sonic branded NBC Nightly News. I remember those days. You know, that's back when 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 money was no object. So he, that's one of the things that he does. But he's also um, uh, they're strongly embedded in what's called uh, spatial audio. So spatial audio is the kind of sound that is attached to uh, virtual reality. And it's different in that in virtual reality, so you've got a pair of uh, of headphones on, for example, right? And you're you're in the virtual reality experience. When you turn your head, the headphone turns with you. Um, what sonic brand, what what sonic spatial reality does is the sound comes from wherever it comes from. So it may come from behind you, or it may come from above you, or the way that the way that people experience. VR in the visual world is the way that they need to experience VR in the audio world. So it was brand new a couple of years ago, and they were the like at the leading edge of that. And now I think everyone is starting to understand that, you know, it's as important, if not more important that I think, look, we all found this out as as, uh, you know, in the edit rooms, the sound was usually more important than than the imagery and maybe by 10 or 15 percent. And and it's exactly the same in VR, whereas the sound, you know, you don't get a complete immersive experience unless you, the sound is, is intimately attached to the video. Did you ever hear the history of Frank and Jesse James and the four younger boys? But the dirty little coward, the chotty chotty Howard, he laid Jesse James in his grave. And then the third thing that I'm doing is um, I recently was the chairman of uh, the Promax UK organization, 
and for the uh, uh, conference this year, uh, which we called the new normal, which looked right. at all of the things that um, uh, that you wouldn't normally expect, or at least up until recently, wouldn't have normally expected to be the things that you would go to a Promax conference for. You used to go to a Promax conference because we wanted to see our friends and have a good time in some other city other than the one we lived in. Right, right. You had opportunities to go to conferences and sessions where people would teach you things like how to make champagne spots on a beer budget or how the best way to direct a spot or how do you direct a voiceover guy. Well, it's gone way beyond that. Now, it's how do you use all of the tools that, uh, that are out there available to you, so social media, so Facebook, so Twitter, so how do you, you know, how do you, how do you shoot and cut video for the online experience? All of these things um, uh, that enter into the way that you would promote, uh, and you know, for for a Promax person, it's going to probably be broadcast or it's some broad, you know, it's not broadcast. It could be OTT. So that means Netflix and and Hulu and uh, Amazon and those kinds of things. How do you market those things when there are no commercials on their network? So what are the other tools? So is it outdoor? Is it radio? Is it blogging? Is it, you know, there's all these different things now that enter into the world that we used to, you know, make promos for us. It's not a matter of making a 30 second spot or a 10 second spot or a 20 second spot anymore or doing a radio piece or maybe a print ad. It's not that anymore at all. There is so much more to do. I imagine that if there was anybody that would not necessarily complain about what we did, but had comments about what we did, it was that we didn't do enough about the old school promos. Really? Yeah. And my my opinion about that was, well, if you need to learn about the old school of promo stuff, then you shouldn't be at this conference anyway, because you should be out, you should be out practicing doing that. Such a slam against my talent made me hotter than a mink And I swore that I would ride it for amusement or for kink Were these local local TV guys from like the flyover stations, that kind of thing? I mean, there, 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 really, there really aren't local TV stations here the way there are in America. Okay, but the, you're talking broadcast brands in the UK. Are there not also a handful or, or a, a huge basket full of cable brands? Your A and E's, your USA's, your yeah, ESPN's. There, there are a handful. There, there, there are a handful of those, or a basket full of those. And um, it's funny though. Um, you know, you, we have a thing here called Freeview. So Freeview is if you buy a TV set and you pay your uh, 135 pounds a year in order to use that TV set, whatever the, the fee is, I can't remember. I just have it automatically deducted. Um, uh, you then get Freeview channels, and there are hundreds of Freeview channels, and you pretty much get all of that stuff. Unless you go out and buy Sky or something like that um, to, in order to, to get movies and things like that, you get everything you want on Freeview. Now, uh, certainly one of the big things that's that's here that is everywhere now is you can plug in a Fire Stick or you can plug in an Apple TV, which probably is really more about what the future is going to be mm-hmm. than anything, or an Amazon uh, Chromecast, whatever. You you know, and that's how people are, are getting their movies. Everything in our world, Barry, is about online everything. So Certainly. all television is online. All audio, it's online. All VR distribution, it's online. Oh, the liars will be running in that... Great day, Lord, the liars will be running in that 
Regarding Promax UK, how is it different from Promax in the States? Well, um, first of all, uh, it's it's much smaller, so it's kind of like it's kind of like the the the, the Soho House Hotel standing next to um, the, uh, uh, the the Holiday Inn. You know, it's it's like you know we have we don't have membership, um, so it's it's voluntary organization. Uh, it's very small, so we'll only have three or four hundred people that will come to a conference. So the conference is automatically more intimate. Um, the, uh, the, there's, the, you know, we also have these, uh, monthly or bi-monthly, uh, evenings where we have presentations of people who have interesting new stuff to talk about. And then we get together and have, uh, you know, food and cocktails or coffee at the end of it so that people can then, um, uh, sort of get together and network. And one of the things that is different about the way the U S organization works is it's, kind of hard to network with new people when you've got 3,000 people there. Yeah, um, yeah. You, you know, you'll go there and, and you tend to, to gravitate to the people that you know. So I'm not sure what good that is. With yeah. Comax UK at such a, you know, if a couple of hundred people tops come to your, your evening event, maybe a hundred, you, it's not so hard to actually, you know, find out that here, what do you do? How do you do it? Um, uh, tell, let's, let's get together and talk about it later. And, um, and, um, uh, uh, so that's a big difference. It's, it's just smaller. Um, everyone here, um, in, in Promax, uh, has, is pretty well entrenched in, I, I don't want to say the old school way of doing things, but okay, pretty much the old school way of doing things. So when you, when you present the new things, there's a desire to want to learn about those new things. I, I wouldn't, I, 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 creatively, in terms of the, the output of really cool creative, whether it's shooting and editing or doing music, or is it great, great, you know, or the artistic end of how you do this. And, you know, the, it's, it's a very creative uh, uh, group here. Really, yeah. really good. I mean, you, you, if you watch commercials made by the uh, British advertising agencies or promos made by the promo groups here, they're beautifully written. They're very right. well crafted. And, but they, they, there is a um, less of a use of and an understanding of the new tools. And uh, that's a big difference because Promax in America has, has really started to make that move sooner. And so that's why I felt that it was a good opportunity for me to, to, to chair here this year or this past year because I could bring something new to the table. So it's almost like they're, they're just a little bit behind the curve. Uh, but they are absolutely not behind the desire to get back to the front of the curve. Oh, I am a jolly Irishman from Ireland. I came. Do you want to know more about me? Pat Murphy is my name. The reason why you're an old media guy who has completely become a new media guy in the UK, no less. So, how did all this happen? How did you become this guy? I'm, I'm not sure that I became that guy as much as I think I was always that guy. It, you know, I, I, I think it probably started out with me as, um, you know, from the from the time I was a musician, and it was important to me when I was as as long ago as when I was nine years old, and I picked up my first electric guitar, and I had to buy an amplifier for it, but I couldn't afford the amplifier, so I built the amplifier, and you know, I built it out of radio parts and I bought things at, at Radio Shack and I created an amplifier. I built my first electric guitar 
uh, to look like Bo Diddley's guitar. I had a silver tone guitar, which cost about $6 at the time and built this square body and stuck some pickups on it that I got from somewhere else in some garbage heap. And, you know, so I, I was always interested in technology at some level. I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, and I, I, I started playing music in, when I was about six. Um, my mother was a photographer at the Times Herald, and she sang in uh, the big bands in the 40s. And my dad was a, 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 a lieutenant colonel in the, in the Army, uh, and I was born in the 40s. Uh, and, uh, so I had a, you know, with my two brothers were athletes and, and so there's a, and we ended up in Chevy Chase, Maryland. So there's this, there's this sort of athletics, military, governmental kind of thing that happened in the Washington DC area. And if you were a part of that, um, then you, you know, you had opportunities that were kind of thrust upon you that a lot of other people didn't. So I was really lucky with that. And my dad, who was also a dentist, ran the dental society and, it was right down the street from the Capitol. So he had a lot of patients that were congressmen and senators and, and you know, executives in the regulatory agencies and that sort of thing. So we were always sort of plugged in. Um, and uh, as, as I was growing up and continuing to play music, my two brothers moved on and became all-American athletes, and I, I, I didn't. So I got better <laughs> and better as a, as a musician while they got better and better as, uh, as athletes. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I could, I could go through the whole, what happened to me in, uh, in, in the sixties, uh, um, in college. But if and, you remembered it, I guess, right. Or, well, you know, I do, I do remember most of it. It wasn't that crazy. It, well, it was that crazy, but I do remember most of it and how, how, you know, what, how I survived, um, having a very low draft number during the Vietnam war in 68 only to. You know, to find uh, to eventually end up covering all of these war zones later in my career. That, that's a different part of the story. But what happened was, I, I uh, it, it was 1972. Uh, I was by now I was in college. I had graduated from high school in 1968 in Washington and went to University of Maryland and uh, was studying. Started out in pre-med, did terribly, um, uh, switched over to astrophysics, did terribly. And, you know, my, my, dad, my dad and I were sitting at the Congressional Country Club where he was one of the founding members. And we were flipping through the catalog and he said, well, you know, you're really doing badly. You'll never make any money. You're going to have a really crappy life. So let's find, <laughs> let's find something for you to do because you're certainly not good enough to be a professional musician, which I was, by the way. Yeah. Um, and he had never heard me. So I, uh, we, we discovered there was this thing, this curriculum at the University of Maryland was called radio, television, and film. And he goes, well, why don't you check that out? Maybe, maybe you'll do something in there. I mean, I don't know. You like to take pictures. You're into this music thing. Go check it out. Yeah. Well, I, I did go check it out. And the next thing you know, I went from having C's and, B, C's and D's to having A's and B's. So I stayed and, and did that. And, uh, you know, we, we started the University of Maryland Television Journalism School, uh, not the school, the journalism department, which mm -hmm. took the people from the, uh, from the uh, drama department and mixed them with the people from the journalism school. And it was 1968 and there were classes were being struck and the weathermen were out there throwing, you know, beer cans at people and, uh, um, and keeping people from going in. And I, I said, well, why don't we, why don't we put this on our live internal television system, which had only been used to teach at the time. So we started doing news stuff and it was really interesting. Ah. 
And, were you producing uh, or were you in front of the camera? I was producing and directing. Listen to all of season one of the Promo Cowboys podcast, including my conversation with Kate Bacon of Well Done Talent. I had a friend in the business. He knew a lot of people. His name was John Tischendorf. And he went by Tish, which was no relation to the people who owned CBS. And Tish was the guy who'd always say, hey, call this guy up and get to know him. That's how I got to know Chuck Bloor, who I wrote for. And that's the height of my career was I I wrote for Chuck Bloor. You hired Chuck to write for you, and he only had two other people that he ever had write for him. And I was one of those two. Kate Bacon, if you're in TV promos and you need a break, she's your best friend. Now, back to Frank Raddus, who's had a few lucky breaks of his own, including with the NBC station in Washington, D.C. It was a Saturday night uh, in 1972, and on the weekends is usually where there was hardly anybody ever in the office, and uh, the Saturday night massacre occurred. So this is during the Nixon administration when he basically fired everybody after the after Watergate's uh, the the failed burglary had occurred. And he started clearing house and trying to change the way that things were going on uh, in the White House and basically trying to build a wall uh, of deception, uh, which was obviously ended up as part of the downfall of Richard Nixon. I was the one of the few people in the office that night and consequently did a whole bunch of work that ended up on. the the NBC television network because the Washington off bureau where I was working was, was shooting this material of these guys carrying their boxes out of their offices at the white house or doing interviews and, and whatnot. And, and my material ended up on the network. And the next week I was working at ABC news in the network, uh, where I then spent the next, uh, I guess, 12 years. Uh, and 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 moved up and up and up and up and up. And it's funny, too, because I, there's a, a moment in time. You know, I was there. I was a part of that moment in time and that it created a situation where I had an opportunity to move and get somewhere further and faster. The same thing happened to me, interestingly enough, in 1979, when the hostages were taken in Iran and I was working the overnight assignment desk, which was once again the place where the, the, the newbies worked. Then they took these hostages and back in those days it wasn't computers, it was wire machines. I tore the wire off the machine, hostages taken in Iran. I had to call the duty correspondent at the State Department to make him come to work that night and it happened to be Ted Koppel. Really? Wow. So I said, Ted, you have you have to come to work. They've taken hostages in Iran. And Ted said to me, well, it's happened before. It'll all be over in a couple of days. Yeah. Well, it wasn't over in a couple of days. It was over in 444 days and it became known as Nightline. Well, Frank Reynolds was the host at first, wasn't he? He was. And Ted was the senior reporter. Frank was very sick. So Frank ended up not being able to do it. And Ted took over. Uh, and because my relationship had begun with Ted on day one of the hostage crisis, he encouraged me to come and work on Nightline. Now, the, the worst part of that was by now I had become the operations producer of the World News. Uh, so I would come to work in the morning, work all the way through World News and then work through Nightline that night. So I literally was working like 15 hour days every single day um, for the first you know, almost hundred of Nightline. Yeah. 
I ended up getting the opportunity to travel around the world for Nightline. So I ended up in, in Central America during the coup in Nicaragua or during the war in El Salvador, mm-hmm. or I ended up in the Middle East during the war between uh, um, the Arabs and the Israelis. And, you know, as the tanks were coming down Dizengoff Street or uh, along, along the main road on the, on the uh, uh, Mediterranean going into Beirut, I was there. Um, and so I had a chance to do all of those kinds of really great stories and cover the big stories of the 80s, the late 70s and the early 80s. Right, right. Uh, and I went on presidential trips and I flew on the presidential plane and then I flew on what was called the zoo plane, which was the plane that followed the presidential plane that was loaded with all the journalists. Uh-huh. And it was called the zoo plane because everybody drank and nobody sat in seats with seat belts. And, and it was it was kind of like, uh, I mean, I, you know, short of having cows and donkeys and chickens on the plane it felt like that and whenever i would go to a uh, to one of these uh, war zones or one of these uh, uh, interesting conflicts i would come back after say three or four months in one of those places and and given the opportunity to kind of decompress by doing almost any kind of story I chose to do. Uh, so I would I would choose to do, you know, fun entertainment type stories. So I did a story on, you know, what it was like to to be a celebrity and how did you protect yourself from uh, from a danger. And I so I went and spent a week in Las Vegas with Wayne Newton. Uh-huh. So much. I did the first story in 1981 on on the emergence of a brand new television network called MTV. Uh, so the very first time and ever anyone in any network ever covered this thing called MTV, I did this story. Even Ted Koppel said on the air, well, unless you've got cable, you've never heard of this music television thing. <laughs> it was so funny. Uh, and I got to meet celebrities and people involved in the music business uh, that I hadn't already known having been in the music business. And and then I would go away and cover uh, a, uh, a hurricane in, in Mobile. So I was down there during Daniel. I was a force five hurricane. It was absolutely unbelievable. You think you're in danger in a war zone. Mm-hmm. It's nothing like being in a, in a hurricane, mm-hmm. especially a powerful hurricane like that. Um, so all, I would alternate back and forth. And I started to get really interested in this entertainment thing. Yeah, I thought, well, you know, it's 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 less likely that I'm going to get killed in the hurricane or I'm going to be shot in a war zone. Yeah. So I'd love to try something new. So I had an offer from a former executive that I worked with at Good Morning America. Uh-huh. He became the executive producer of Entertainment Tonight. And he asked me if I wanted to come and work at Entertainment Tonight as a director. And I said, wow, that's really cool. And so I got my director's guild card and I went to work for Entertainment Tonight for about a year, knowing that by doing so, I was giving up my opportunity to continue as a journalist. And you're in the control room for this. No, I was in the field. I was a segment director. Um, And so I um, but you have to be in the director's guild in order to be a segment director uh, for Entertainment Tonight. So I did that for a year or so. And um, I had I had pitched uh, to CNN uh, a show like it, but I wanted to do it live. Uh, and CNN eventually came to me and said, oh, why don't you come and, and do your show? Uh, and it was basically Entertainment Tonight Live, and we called it Showbiz Today. Yeah, I remember that show. Who was your host for that show? We had Bill Tush. Yes. And Liz Wickersham. Liz Wickersham, um, I guess she was well known for having been a Playboy cover model. You know, very attractive woman. And Bill was a really funny guy, both close friends of, of Ted Turner's. And 
uh, we went in and we started this show and it just was, it was a blast. And I did that for four or five years, but the more I did that, uh, the more I, I sort of pulled away from journalism, by the way, at the end of my journalism career, I was made to stop playing music because it didn't fit in with being a journalist. I had a seven year hiatus from playing music that I was able to playing music yourself. You're saying you're, you were unable to get up on stage and rock out. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, they didn't like that. I couldn't go and spend time with the band. I couldn't rehearse with the band. I had to stop playing music. And because I had gained this reputation as a journalist, as, as, as they called me rock and roll raddest, which I thought was really funny. And, uh, did they think it was unseemly for you to, be uh, you know hanging out with Keith Richards or something like that I'm not sure if it was if, if it was unseemly as much it was as it was it was uh, un- unlike a journalist you you know you you have to be looked at in a, in a in a much more serious way and I remember getting off a plane in in Grenada uh, right after the uh, invasion, they we couldn't you couldn't get in right away because the American military just sort of block, blocked the island off while they were clearing out the uh, I, I guess the dead bodies and uh, and we flew in and I came off the plane and the correspondent I was with looked up at me and he went oh my god they sent rock and roll radis. <laughs> So it was a guy that I hadn't worked with. So it was kind of like I kept having to, yeah. you know, to retrain people that I, you know, that I knew what I was doing. And um, uh, but eventually, uh, as 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 time went on, and I stopped being uh, being a journalist and moved into entertainment journalism, uh, I, I was able to bring music back into my life, which is interesting because I ended up writing a theme song for the Today Show or co-writing a theme song for the Today Show as a professional musician which paid me enough money over the years to buy a house in the south of France. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Note to self, learn to write music. Right on, mighty rider, you got your reins in your hand. Well, I ride on... Yeah, I went back to ABC after many years away from ABC. And, and so one day... I'm standing at the uh, uh, copying machine. I'm drinking a cup of coffee and a piece of paper comes out. And of course, being nosy, I look down at it and it said 1991 uh, uh, termination suggestions. And my name was at the top of the list. Oh. So, of course, I copied it and gave it to everyone else who was on the list. <laughs> The uh, the executive uh, in charge of the department came up and had a had a, this big meeting and said, "Oh, these are just ideas. This is not going to happen. Don't worry about it. How dare that person, whoever did that? I'm going to get his ass." Blah blah. blah. Anyway, everybody got fired like a week later. So so that that ends up being um, uh, being my my introduction to promos. So I go I go upstairs and. I didn't have a love-hate relationship with the promo department. I had a hate relationship with the promo department because they would always come and ask me for stuff I was working on. And I would go, I, I'm working on this. Don't you know I'm not against the deadline? You can't have any of my material. Screw you, blah, blah, blah. I had no idea the importance of it at the time. Oh, that's so funny. Been on the other end of that conversation plenty of times yeah. with other guys. Um, and so, and, and I was, and I was that guy. Yeah. Uh, and I went the next day, and I did promos for the ABC's World News Tonight, and then I ended up doing promos for 2020, and then I did promos for Primetime Live, and I did that for like a year. Mm-hmm. For my entire career of being a full-time guy, somewhere I end up as a part-timer in the promo department. Talk about a fall from grace. <laughs> well, it felt like it felt like Jesus. My whole life has, has ended up at, at this. I'm making 10 second spots. Still didn't realize yeah. at the time that more people saw the promos than ever saw the TV shows. Because if a 10 second promo ran inside a primetime show with 30 million viewers, more people would watch that than any promo, any show you ever promoted. 
I didn't think about yeah. that. It was, you know, but but it was it started to get fun and it started I started enjoying creating these little 10, 15, 20, 30 second things because they were they were they gave you an opportunity to to, you know, to take your best ability to write uh, and then synthesize it into something that was really cool in 30 seconds, but didn't necessarily tell the whole story, but made you interested. Right. You go get the story. All those things that promo writers know how, eventually learn how to do as they get better. So I ended up uh, being given an offer to go and um, and be the manager of promos at WCBS. And our worlds collide. Boom. There you go. Worlds collide next time on the Promo Cowboys podcast. We'll leave Frank for now, but here's a taste of what you'll hear in part two of my interview with Rock and Roll Radis. It was kind of the you know the, the great time to be in the promotion department at NBC because you know the Today Show was going from last to first, and Nightly News was going from last to first, and we had great dramas and comedies like uh, Hill Street Blues and, and Seinfeld and Friends. And I became the vice president and then I became the senior vice president and then I became the executive vice president. And each time getting more money and getting more people and having more responsibility. This is Barry Fitzsimmons. Thanks for listening. As always, the Promo Cowboys podcast is brought to you by bourbon, beer and bar pretzels. And by my TV industry crime novel, Promo Cowboy, available in softcover at Amazon.com and your finer bookstores. And find the ebook at the Amazon Kindle store. I want to thank my guest today, Mr. Frank Raddus. Thanks also to Holly Hall of Four Barrel Carb, composer of the Promo Cowboys theme music, and freesound.org for the instrumental music used in this podcast, and the Pond 5 Public Domain Project for all them cute little cowboy ditties. And a final musical note, I want to thank Pat Travers for his awesome song, Life in London, which Frank Raddus is living. That's from his 1977 album, Putting It Straight, which helped me get through high school. Please rate this podcast at iTunes. Subscribe and share on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And don't forget to check out my Promo Cowboys Facebook page. Reach me, as always, on Twitter, at Promo Cowboy. Also on Facebook and LinkedIn, at Barry Fitzsimmons. Promo Cowboys is a Steve production. Steve is a division of Igloo Media, LLC. This podcast was edited and produced by Barry Fitzsimmons. Thanks again for joining me. As Promo Cowboy says, Shoot, will you look at the time? Everybody take a deep breath now and hold your nose. For the next four years, take us out. <laughs>